The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts. Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have Jim Sinelli on the show, who's an environmental engineer by trade. He's the principal of Liberty Environmental Incorporated with offices in Philadelphia and New York. He has 30 years of experience doing all cool things in environmental consulting, like site assessments and remediation, water, wastewater treatment, storage tank management, spill prevention. And the reason I mention all that is because I don't know very much about it. And that's why he's on the show. So we're going to learn what all that means. And a bunch of other fun stuff that goes along with being an environmental engineer. But uh, first, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. I'm glad to be here. Sweet. I'm excited to to learn a lot. But uh, first, I want to hear a little bit about what you may might be your first milestone in real estate. Uh, my first personal milestone in real estate would have to be when I bought my my first house. Yeah, I bought. Uh, I think I was 29 years old. I bought a, a little little townhouse. And uh, it was a learning experience, like it is for for everybody. But sold that one and bought a couple other houses uh, since then. Uh, so that would have to be my first milestone uh, in real estate. I did also five years ago uh, invest in an office building where our headquarters are in Reading, Pennsylvania. So um, that's been a real real adventure. Um, so uh, those are a couple of real estate milestones in, in my personal life. Cool. Well, I'm sure you've got a lot in your career as well, given uh, the line of work. But uh, to start, you know, you're an environmental engineer. What what does that mean? <laughs> uh, what is an environment? Well, well, first of all, our, you know, our, our company um, is um, is an environmental consulting company. So we we have really people from um, different walks of life, but all working somehow related to uh, the environment. So we have geologists, we have biologists environmental scientists and environmental engineers. Um, and a lot of what we do is related to real estate, of course. Um, so it, anytime somebody's, almost anytime somebody's buying a commercial property, they'll do an environmental assessment. Um, and that would be an environmental scientist going out to look at the property and taking a look at its history. You know, what was, what's there now? What was there 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago? Um, and we're identifying any potential environmental concerns because when somebody buys a property, they buy any kind of liability that comes with it, including environmental liabilities. So uh, to a certain extent, there's possible, and I'm not a lawyer, of course, but to, to a certain extent, they could always go after previous owners that might have caused contamination, but they'd much rather know that before they, you know, they purchase a property. So we're looking for, you know, um, underground tanks holding, you know, gasoline or diesel fuel that might have leaked. Um, industrial processes that might have been on the site at one time. Uh, dry cleaners are famous for contaminating soil and groundwater with chlorinated solvents. 
Um, so, so, you know, environmental scientists conduct these investigations and if there's a, you know, a, a concern that we identify, then we go in and do the actual testing. Our geologists get out there with uh, drilling rigs and drilling rig operators. They, uh, they drill holes, they collect soil samples, they put in wells and collect water samples. Um, the engineer comes in when there is contamination and it's decided that the contamination is at high enough levels that some kind of remediation needs to be done. Um, so, uh, you know, and I'm speaking specifically about um, uh, remediation engineers, environmental engineers that deal with soil and groundwater remediation, which is, which is, which is what I am. Um, so we, we evaluate the extent of the contamination that has been identified by, by our geologists and scientists, and we uh, design a system um, that will uh, remediate soil or groundwater or both so that we meet, um, you know, action levels that are that are established typically by state governments, but sometimes by the federal governments in the case of like a Superfund site, uh, or even sometimes local governments. Um, other environmental uh, engineers specialize in uh, other dif different types of, you know, pollution, um, uh, air quality for one, you know, every factory em emits some kind of uh, pollutant. Uh, cars emit pollutants and humans <laughs> emit pollutants too. You, you can't breathe without emitting carbon dioxide, and that you know that's 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 a greenhouse gas. But but you know uh, manufacturing plants you know could emit large levels of, of pollutants, and so those those air emissions are subject to a lot of regulations. And sometimes engineers have to come in and design systems to reduce the amount of uh, air pollution um, or waste or, or pollution in their wastewater or in their stormwater. So but an engineer is, is designing systems to reduce the, the uh, release of uh, pollution to our environment. Great. Well, that's a oh, thorough explanation and definitely um, illuminates a lot about the, about the process of how, how the company works and how um, what you guys do. But I, before we get into more of the, the meat and bones of it, um, how did you get into this line of work? Jeez. Uh, yeah, I usually tell people, Story that goes back to when I was a kid. I was a kid. We had a sandbox in the, in the, in the back of in our backyard, and I just loved, uh, you know, bridges and 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 uh, making little streams in the sand and sending water down. Something always fascinated me about the flow of water. So so I went to uh, got my bachelor's from Lehigh University in civil engineering, um, and I was I was uh, at Lehigh from 1986 to 1990, which was right around the time where the environmental industry was exploding because you had very new regulations in 1984, 1986, and and a lot of uh, a lot of growth, especially in the in that um, remediation engineering sector. So um, I, when I graduated, I did practice for a couple of years doing traditional civil engineering, um, uh, doing stormwater management. But I, I really had a passion for for the environmental uh, side, and and uh, you know slowly within that firm, my my career, my work, my work assignments and, and career progressed towards the uh, towards the environmental side of things. So I was out there doing uh, working for a very small firm. So I had the opportunity to kind of learn what the geologists do. I was out out in the field uh, collecting soil samples and putting in wells and and doing sampling, and and that helped me, I think, to be a, a you know a better remediation engineer because I, I I understood. A little better the data collection that goes on you know before the engineering design start yeah well that's super exciting and so it's cool to get that um you know variety of experience and definitely um <laughs> it sounds like it's worked out for you but 
so let's uh, apply what we've learned so far to real estate. So when does a developer or an owner or a potential acquirer need to engage you? Um, you know, how's that process start? And then, you know, how does that process continue? Because I know there might be multiple phases to environmental consulting and, um, yeah, you know, sure. assessment. So, uh, Well, yeah, you know, probably 90% of the time somebody um, uh, decides they want to buy a, a commercial property whether it's retail or office or warehouse, and they go to a bank and they say, I need to borrow, you know, I need to borrow a million dollars when I buy this property. Bank will say, okay, there's three things you need. You need a title report. We need an appraisal to confirm the value of the property. And we need an environmental uh, assessment done. We call them phase one environmental site assessment. So a lot of times that's how we get involved uh, first. And that's kind of how I described it before, you know, phase one assessment and phase two, where you go out and collect the, uh, the data. And sometimes the site's clean and we're done right there. But then, you know, if it's a contaminated site that turns into a larger project for us and it takes, you know, not, not months, but years sometimes to, uh, to remediate. Other times we just get a call. We get a call from maybe the gas station that had uh, an alarm go off that their tank's leaking. And so we immediately just go out and, and uh, you know, uh, perform the uh, the investigation around the leaking tank. Um, so yeah, uh, de depending on the on the type of site and um, you know what what's happening with it, um, our our role can uh, can vary. On redevelopment sites, um, and Ben, remind me, are, are you located in in New York City? Yeah, I was. That's where I was this summer, but I'm uh, back in Potomac, Maryland, right now. Gotcha, gotcha. So. So there, every state has its own environmental regulations, which can make it make it challenging. Um, you know, I, I've, I've worked primarily in, in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and um, um, the the science is the same. You know, the contaminants are the same, and so you, you you do all the data collection and investigation the same way, but the regulations are so different, and what the states will allow uh, uh, and and what they require. And, and, and therefore, whether remediation is needed or not. So a lot of times we're, uh, if it's a, a redevelopment site, we're, you know, we're, we're there throughout the construction phase overseeing remediation. And then we might be directing um, the, uh, the designers, the, uh, the architects and the engineers on how to, um, how to incorporate environmental protection systems into a new building that's going into, into place. Because sometimes you're, you're managing contaminants in place. You, you don't always clean up a site uh, until it's back to its original pristine condition, that would be completely un unreasonable. So it's it's uh, it's something that that we call risk-based corrective action. We we remediate to the point where not not that all the all the contamination is completely gone, but that it no longer poses a risk to, to human health or the environment. So um, we're in there, you know, designing and overseeing installation of ventilation systems or some kind of cap. To, uh, to provide a barrier between you know people and, and the contamination that's managed in place. So so yeah, our 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 uh, our work starts you know at, at pre-acquisition and sometimes um, if if it's a development site um, goes all the way to the time where you know they're getting their certificate their certificate of occupancy and and uh, you know uh, people are moving into the building. Great. So let's say it's not all hunky dory and we need a environmental phase two or three if even um what does that entail like what is a traditional maybe we can take an example what would be an example of um some like something that may come up and then how do you mitigate that and 
you know, then what's the process for an owner after that happens? Yeah, I, I mean, some contaminated sites, you know, run the, the full gamut, all right? You know, it, you could have the very slightest amount of contamination, and it might be as simple as getting out there with a backhoe and a, and a dump truck, digging out a little bit of soil, sending it to a landfill, and taking some samples to make sure it's clean. Um, so, uh, but first you gotta, like I said, the scientist has to go out there, collect samples and determine the extent of contamination. The other end of the spectrum, you've got, you've got former landfills that are on the federal Superfund list that might not be cleaned up for 50 or even a hundred years. Um, and, and with, you know, with tens of millions of dollars spent on, on, uh, on cleanup, uh, you know, tapping the landfill or putting in some kind of uh, barrier to prevent the, the migration of contaminants in groundwater. Uh, sometimes people already have contaminated wells, you know, residents living around a contaminated site and you have to install systems on their drinking wells to, you know, to, to remove pollutants. And um, there has to be companies out there that then maintain those systems and monitor them. And, and we get involved in that as well. We have technicians that go out on sites and, and maintain systems. Um, so a, a phase two could be, um, a, a geologist or scientist out, out in the field just uh, putting in soil borings around a tank for uh, you know four hours or eight hours or or, or it could be a process that, that literally lasts years on a on a really giant site where that might have 100 200 300 wells installed over time well on that note what's the hardest problem you've had to deal with in your business like the hardest environmental problem you've had to solve Ah, uh, geez. <laughs> um, you know, one of my favorite projects to talk about is uh, was one of our industrial clients, um, and it actually didn't have to do with it, it was environmental uh, environmental engineering project, but it didn't have to do with soil or groundwater remediation because I, I've done a little bit, like you mentioned, uh, I've done a little bit of wastewater and industrial stormwater consulting, and we had a client that had um, um, that had a, a very small discharge of, of cooling water. Uh, but it had really high metals concentrations, and they couldn't understand why why metals were getting into their cooling tower. Cooling tower is non-contact; it's just a closed loop system. It really shouldn't, you know. Uh, so, so we we had to uh, you know put on our inspector Cluzo hat and uh, get out there and uh, you know try to find the source. And and well, it turns out that it was you know from doing a little sampling and process of elimination. Um, you know, as this cooling tower dish, you know, the water kind of trickled out of the cooling tower, it went through the storm sewer and the storm sewer had all kinds of metals in it. And the reason it had all kinds of metals is because this was a, a copper tube plant. <laughs> and over mm. the years, it was emitting copper out of its uh, stacks and it was settling on the ground, <coughs> getting into the storm sewer. And um, the state said, OK, great. Congratulations. You found the source. Um, yeah. We don't care that it's not coming from your cooling tower. We don't care where it's coming, but it's getting into the river. You you you, you can't do that. You got to find a way to uh, remove it. So you, you know, um, wastewater treatment, groundwater treatment can be very expensive. You know, pumps, chemicals, tanks, um, and a lot of labor to manage the system. So what we did, this is and this is a project, you know, about 20 years ago. You know, about the middle of my career. Um, we did something that at the time was pretty uh, innovative, but has uh, ground, gained more traction today. It's, it's more commonly seen. We designed a, a constructed wetland, um, a, a big basin, and uh, 
you know, to put it in the simplest form, it's a big like uh, excavated basin, but it's filled with cattails. Um, and it, um, you know, so we designed it. Uh, it was, we oversaw the construction. And um, as the cattails grew uh, and, the, and the wastewater would, uh, would go through the cattails, the peat that they, that they grow in, as well as the cattail plants themselves, um, would absorb 90% of, of those metals. Uh, and um, this, this company no longer was violating their, uh, their discharge permit. They weren't getting fines every month from the, the state agency. Um, and it was a really cool uh, design project that, that ended up in a nice uh, success story for our client. And it was a system that, you know, like I, I, I loved the system because it really had zero energy zero labor to maintain uh, except for occasional minor cleanouts, um, and it didn't require any kind of chemical injection or anything like that. You're really using kind of nature and gravity uh, to, to clean up one of our, you know, our man-made problems. Yeah, and it makes you think when humans think that we're so powerful and we can create all these amazing things, which is true, we, we always turn back and realize that nature really has this beat and its power and its ability to optimize. It's a has years and years of evolution and, you know, guess symbioses and, and different processes of, um, you know, maintaining habitats that are, you know, I guess still, still more powerful than some of the things you can do. Yeah. And it's really cool to understand those natural processes and see how we can tweak them and use them to, to our benefit, uh, you know, to clean up our, you know, our, our pet sins or, or to prevent, you know, future damage to the environment. Um, it's, um, that, that's that's what's interesting uh, from a technical standpoint uh, about my you know my career is is it's constantly changing. There are technologies that are constantly being uh, developed or, or or improved upon, um, and uh, you know that that's why we we have to stay up on the newest technologies and and uh, we have continuing education requirements that are very important for anyone in, in, in engineering, I think especially in environmental engineering to stay abreast of, of, of what's what's new and, and what's best for us to apply to our projects. Yeah, so what are some of the newest cutting edge technologies? You know, in, in remediating uh, groundwater, uh, the old school way, which is still sometimes applied today, but it, it is the, the the oldest way is, you know, you got contamination in groundwater, you put a well in, you put a, a pump in that well, you pump it out and you treat it and then you discharge your, uh, your treated groundwater. These days, we, we um, more often uh, than pump and treat, we actually are injecting chemicals into the ground. Um, chemicals are sometimes nutrients and microbes. So there's, there's chemical remediation and, and then there's bioremediation. Uh, bioremediation is, is, is very viable. It's a slower process, but, um, you know, there are natural microbes in the ground that interestingly can degrade a lot of the contaminants that, that we put into groundwater, uh, but they need stimulation. So, so we, we, we adjust the chemistry, we might add nutrients and, uh, with, again, using, uh, just giving nature a little, a little push, a little stimulus, um, uh, we, we can remediate that way. But a lot of times remediation has to done, be done more, uh, uh, more expeditiously. And so we, uh, in the last 20 years, uh, in situ uh, methods have been developed where you drill holes in the ground and you inject at high pressure 
chemicals that basically uh, oxidize or zap, if you want to use the non-technical term, the contaminants that, that, that are in the ground. Um, that way, you know, sites are remediated more, more quickly and, and they can be, uh, be redeveloped. Um, and there's been tens of thousands of, thanks, thanks to changes in regulations 20 years ago and the development of, of, of new technologies, a lot of old abandoned brownfield sites are, are now um, just thriving um, redeveloped commercial sites. And, and that's, uh, that's another cool, cool part of, of, of um, the job of somebody in the environmental industry is, is that we, you know, we take ice, uh, ice and, and um, utilizing our, our skills and, and technology that's out there, get them, uh, get them, get those old properties back on the rent rolls. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, uh, we, we enjoy, you know, working, uh, working for developers that are taking on those sometimes challenging environmentally distressed properties. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty exciting. Um, definitely it's cool to hear that technology is coming back and like, you know, making obviously land viable, which is definitely like good for, um, utilization. It's definitely, uh, probably, probably could also clean up the environment just simply enough. So mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty interesting. And um, I guess we've kind of danced around like regulations, but I'm kind of curious to hear, um, you know, what's the EPA is that who is making these regulations? Is, is that where, is that the, the big bad enemy or is that the, the friend? Like, you know, what's the, what's the relationship um, there and like kind of how do you, you work with the regulations in that sense? Uh, well, you know, the saying goes, where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit. Um, so mm -hmm. is EPA, you know, the, 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 the savior or, or are they the, uh, the enemy? Um, I mean, I, you, you know, obviously I, 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 everyone wants a clean environment. You know, we don't want polluted streams. We don't want polluted air. Um, it can be frustrating, you know, for uh, real estate um, uh, developers uh, when they get Surprised sometimes by uh, you know environmental uh, cleanup costs that, that they were anticipating, and you know we we as consultants are the go between from between the you know the the regulated entities and and the regulators. So we we try to get our clients in compliance with environmental um, regulations and other requirements at. Uh, applying our knowledge and, and the best technology at, at, at the lowest cost possible. And sometimes we have to butt heads with the regulators when we don't uh, agree with the, uh, the decisions they're making. Uh, so we, we, we act in, in the interest of protecting the environment, but in, in our clients uh, best, best interest so that, you know, there's, there's not unreasonable requirements uh, put on them. Um, and, that, and that's the role of a consultant. And not everybody who goes into the environmental field is in consulting. You know, some people obviously work in the environmental agencies. Um, some people work for industry. Um, until all my career, I've been in, in, in consulting. Um, but yeah, the, everything comes come down comes down from the EPA. And and even even today, there are new pollutants that are um, uh, that are arising that we're figuring out how to deal with. Um, there's, there's a group of pollutants called um, PFAS, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, <laughs> perfluoral alcohol substances. And there's like 3,000 of them. And, and a lot of states only have uh, action levels, that are, you know, are 
drinking water standards for maybe a half a dozen of them. So it's very new. It's it's scaring uh, some people because they don't know what their what their potential liability is with possible PFAS contamination. They come from plastics manufacturing, um, particularly the manufacturer of Teflon, and, and we're finding them all over. Um, and the cleanup levels are, are set super, super low. <laughs> we're talking about parts per trillion uh, cleanup levels. So um, <clears throat> it's something that um, the regulated community and the regulators and, and we consultants in the middle are, are, are learning about and, and grappling with these things. Wow, that's pretty interesting. And um, I mean, scary to think about how far that could go. Like, are we even, do we even know if we're 10% and all the possible pollutants that we've never even seen before or never discovered? Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know, but it's kind of interesting to even <laughs> think that there'd be new pollutants or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we love new uh, development of new uh, new products, and you know, a lot of times that means uh, developing new new chemicals that goes into the products, and they make our lives better. And uh, but then we find out 10, 20, 30 years later that um, uh, we've they're they're you know they're causing uh, health concerns, and and um, and it's it's you know the next the next wave that uh, kind of overwhelms the environmental market. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I definitely think about that somewhat being uh, living in New Orleans at the bottom of the Mississippi. Don't even do don't even know it's going through the, the pipes there. But um, that's why I definitely, definitely filter my water. <laughs> but um, yeah, I Good mean, idea for everyone. yeah, yeah. So after this, definitely, definitely uh, keep that in mind. <laughs> so um, yeah, I guess, what are the do you ever suggest like mitigants or not mitigants, but more prevent pre- like prevention measures for for owners before maybe even before they engage you that um maybe like someone coming to the property should think about just like you know there's a risk with most properties that we can do something about um yeah you know i i look at things a little different than uh, <laughs> than other people and you know just a residence you know my my sister and brother-in-law have a, a heating oil tank in their basement and they might have thought this is the weirdest recommendation ever, but I said, you know, put, you know, put a little containment around that tank if the tank ever goes and it won't spill all over and get under your, your, your house's foundation and cause, cause a nightmare. Because even though it's a residence, uh, you know, if there's a, a release of a, of a contaminant like heating oil, it's, you know, you're, you're liable. So um, I, I take, you know, experiences like that and try to uh, try to try to share them. Um, I'm very conscious now compared to how I, you know, I was many years ago about, you know, what I, what I dump in my, my backyard. Um, uh, you know, you see people dumping their, uh, their paint thinner and whatever in, in, into the sewer. And that's why you see little, little placards on, on stormwater inlets, you know, drains to river, no dumping. Uh, Cause we did a lot of, a lot of bad things uh, for, for the environment for many years that, that we need to, uh, you know, avoid doing. Um, like I said, you know, we, we all want clean water and clean air. We just, we can't be lazy. We have to be diligent, you know, not, not just as, you know, in, in our professional lives in real estate, but each individual. Right. And I guess before we go, what, um, what, or before we had the lightning round, what do we, or what should we um, look at if we're like looking at a new property, what should be like something we definitely check for before 
going too far. Maybe, you know, some yeah. clear red flags that you know you got to like, stay away from or you know you have to input in your models before you, you put out an offer, before you even acquire. There's, there's two things. First of all, any kind of underground tank. You know, that, that's always number one. Um, how do you know if an underground tank is there? Well, I mean, when you're doing it for years and years, like I have, I, I can almost sniff them out like a hound dog. But but there, there are little things on the ground surface that you can look for, like a fill cap. Uh, a layperson might not know the difference between an underground tank fill cap and a gas valve or a water valve or, or a sewer vent. But, you know, um, uh, underground tanks have a little cap where you, you know, fill the tank with oil and then they typically have a little vent pipe sticking out of the ground. So th those, you know, when we're doing our phase one environmental site assessment walkthroughs, that's that's what our that's what our hound dogs are <laughs> are looking for. Uh, and then and then looking into the history of a site, you know, was it a gas station? Was it was it a uh, dry cleaner? Uh, dry cleaners, unfortunately, sometimes are very small properties with not a lot of value, but they they can sometimes have huge uh, cleanup liability. So, knowing um, uh, if it if it is or ever had 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 actual dry cleaning on it um, uh, is is you know number number two in in my books. Uh, so, and you know, and a layperson can can go out there and. and do research and develop experience and, and start to know some of those things to look out for. I, you know, I know some bankers that, you know, have actually, uh, they've been doing it a while and they'll go out and do preliminary, uh, site walks before they, you know, before they, they call, uh, the consultants and say, Hey, you know, just to let you know, I saw this and that. So yeah, those yeah. are a couple of things. Yeah. Super interesting. I remember, I remember when we first met, um, you told me about dry cleaners and I was super surprised. I was like, uh, I always thought about dry gas stations, but um, yeah, dry cleaners definitely sounds like where chemicals are using are not not the best. What's really rough about dry cleaners is is that uh, the chemicals that they use, uh, you know, gasoline and diesel fuel float on the water. Uh, dry cleaning chemicals or chlorinated solvents, they're they're deeper than water, so it generally makes investigation and cleanup more difficult and and more expensive. Um, that's just uh, the un the unfortunate thing of uh, of dry cleaners, you know. Yeah, I know. That's, that's pretty crazy. Well, you ready for the lightning round? I'm terrified of the lightning round, but go ahead. <laughs> Great. Well, what's your favorite or what superpower would you choose if you could have any superpower? Uh, I want to fly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'd fly all over the world at every chance I had. <laughs> nice. Nice. That's a, that's a good one. That's popular in, in real estate, especially when you want to make sure the roof's intact. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, imagine, imagine the site investigation capabilities I would have if I could fly. Wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? Oh, God, I, I read a great book and, you know, it came out 30 years ago when I was in college and I never read it. It was the business students that that were reading it. And I always saw them walking around with it. Finally, a couple of years ago, I, I read it. Uh, you know, I went to Lehigh. Uh, university in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, big steel town. Um, and this is uh, a book um, about, um, it's called Crisis in Bethlehem. And it was about really the rise and fall of the steel industry in the United States, um, as told uh, by someone who was the, I think for about 20 years, the editor of, of the uh, newspaper in, in Bethlehem. And he, and he you know, saw and, and heard everything. But um, some great, um, some, some, I, but first of all, I love industrial history and maybe that's because of all the research I've you know, done in my environmental career, you know, 
and, and working for uh, industrial clients, but I just love old industrial history. Uh, and it's sad, but fascinating at, at the same time, the story of, of how uh, the steel industry uh, rose and, and, and fell in, in America. Um, they're, 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 you know, it, it came down to mentality and personality, and, you know, as, as much as it was technology and, and foreign competition. So uh, a great read um, and a book I'll probably read again in a little while. Yeah, I know you. I know what you mean, and I, this, I couldn't say that this is necessarily history, but when I read Atlas Shrugged, um, and like learned about, you know, obviously, it's all about like the industrial expansion of the of the country with the railroads and yeah. um, buildings, or whatever. But um, now whenever I walk in New York City and I see like the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building, I just like I have this like emotional reaction of like how amazing and beautiful it is that like wow before steel like there were no skyscrapers and then with steel they're building the same height buildings that we're still building now i guess we're going a little bit taller now but it's like that order of magnitude that steel allowed for the expansion of real estate and the expansion of industry like everywhere it's just like it's just it's kind of weird to call like this industrial machine beautiful because you know that's not a classic association but it's really kind of interesting to think about oh yeah yeah Great. So what motivates you to continue every day? Ah, uh, geez. Um, you know, I, I, I have, I'm the president of this company. It's a small company. We have 30 employees and, and I just love every aspect of my job. And, and I, I really like um, coming come to work and, and doing a variety of things. Uh, so I, I still, I still work on projects. I still build time to projects. I'm doing technical work, uh, mostly, um, you know, managing uh, projects. But sometimes uh, I put a pen to paper and actually do do design. And 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 when I'm doing it, th- this point in my career, um, I'm I'm almost always teaching somebody else's same point. So I, I do really like uh, you know being a mentor to to younger scientists uh, and engineers. Um, and I love growing the business. I'm, you know, the other half of my day is, is spent um, uh, developing business and and and, and um, being looking at our, our strategical plan and, um, and and finding ways that that we can grow and be successful. So, um, yeah, I, I come in, I come into the office um, excited every day. You know, for for a few different reasons, and I love I love that uh, variety. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So what would, what advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? Um, work your butt off. <laughs> you can say that about any career, I guess, but, um, you know, make sure you love it. Make sure it's something you want to do uh, for your career. Uh, and it, and that, you know, whether it, whether it is environmental science or geology or, or, or engineering, uh, you know, make sure it's something that's, that is going to make you want to get up and go to work every day. Um, and then keep, keep studying. Well, you come out of college spending a lot of money and, and spending four years and you, you know only this much of what there is to know um, about the, uh, the environmental industry. So, um, you know, I got, I got my master's in, in environmental engineering and, and just continue to uh, a, a attend seminars and, and conferences and go to continuing education because it's just like I mentioned before, technology is changing. Um, yeah, be, be, uh, uh, 
decide and when you decide you like it uh that's great then 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 be committed to you know to being the best engineer or scientist that you can great we'll definitely take that to to heart and i think that applies to more than just uh engineering and science so Absolutely. appreciate it yeah. all right so um since i put you on the spot i want to give you a chance for revenge so um feel free to ask me any question you want to know about me <laughs> um uh t- tell me um how you uh uh landed at, at uh, where, uh, i'm sorry your tulane yeah your tulane what made you choose tulane yeah so um feels like the all the stars all aligned kind of when when i first went down to visit um most beautiful day ever uh, so funniest thing i've applied to mostly schools in the north like maryland might have been the second most southern school i applied to just because um yes that's a lot of what I've known and seen and kind of grew up, grew up with, and both my parents were at Northern East Coast schools. So um, but I've obviously heard a lot about Tulane, had a lot of um, older role models and friends who who went there. And when uh, I've always, so I had in my mind that it was a great place. And when I went down, it's the most beautiful day, walking around and everyone was smiling. Everyone was outside, like having a good time. Um, and it was just like something about the energy there and like the, the personal aspect where like every person, like everyone like, seemed like friends and like everyone was open to being friends and just like there's such a, a warm like environment and the community is the same way new orleans is such a, a welcoming open community that's um super cool to be immersed in for the, for the last couple of years and so just a uh, city the school just the the culture of it is all all great and then um obviously i i'm well, not obviously but i'm studying finance management and philosophy and i wanted to go to a school where um, all the disciplines were very strong. There's like good professors everywhere. I could, um, you know, have this, I could explore all my different interests and, you know, kind of create my own education and learn about what, and, you know, follow my curiosity and um, definitely have that there. And it's uh, been, been a great journey. And I've realized that finance and philosophy has have much more in common or have much more synergy than you might think at first glance, because, you know, your models are only as good as the assumptions you make. Yeah. Philosophy is really how to, figure out what you don't know and um, definitely helps be a better mitigator of risk and um, investor. That's great. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in uh, how students made their decisions these days. Cause my, uh, I have one who's going into the sophomore year in college and another one who's starting to look at schools and um, he's going to be a senior in high school. And uh, he's, he's asking me, you know, for why why I why I made my decision and what I think of these this college and this campus and uh, it's always good to hear uh, hear stories from uh, young people like yourself and and how they made their selection. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Bigsby's advice is like the the learning is like it's it comes from your yourself. Like you know, there's ways to get good grades. There's ways to just you know pass, get through. But like to be curious and to you know, take it upon yourself to learn and not just assume that since you're at college, you're just going to get the information that that's, it's just a, it's just a, you know, A equals B or A leads to B, right? Just the deeper you can be driven to learn and the more that you pursue it on your own, maybe even outside of class or just, you know, your level of engagement and the choice to do that is, um, that's really, I think that makes the biggest difference. And um, so, yeah, I encourage anyone to think about that and make sure to, if they don't know what they're curious about, um, you know, well, I mean, if they don't know what they want to do, just follow the curiosity and to use possible elimination to figure out where the right path is. I really appreciate it when we have young employees that are not just learning what's given to them, but seeking out 
uh, um, uh, you know, their own on their own, you know, ways to learn. Um, well, I'd love love to, um, you know, have have young young employees with with initiative. Uh, and and like I said before, the the desire and willingness to continue learning it's a great thing. It's, it's yeah. important. Yeah, that's the theme of this podcast. Almost every guest has um come back to that, and it's uh shows with all these you know seemingly happy and successful people um who I know are are that, and um yeah, it's definitely a common trend. So yeah, I appreciate that. And any final remarks? Um, you know, where can people find you and learn more about what you do? Uh, yeah, the, the name of, uh, again, my name's Jim Sinelli, and uh, the name of my company is is Liberty Environmental. We have three offices in Pennsylvania and, and, and one in New York, and um, you can find us at www.libertyenviro.com. You can get my information on the website. I think that's the easiest way to track me down, uh, and um, uh, always like, um, uh, you know, answering questions and helping people solve their problems so don't hesitate to reach out if you know, run into any environmental challenges awesome well i encourage anyone listening to do that definitely don't want to get to the don't let it get too late before you you know remediate or solve your possible environmental issues so i'm um, definitely definitely glad to have a resource like you jim so appreciate you coming on the show anyone who's enjoyed this podcast or learned something please give a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the message and um, make me happy because I love reading those reviews. So um, I would appreciate that. And Jim and everyone, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support and keep making milestones.